often, of course, we begin our what we call our practice, um, you know, sitting still, focusing on breathing in, breathing out, or other such microcosmic experiences, you know, like just within this body, you know, starting right there, focusing inwardly. We call it focusing inwardly on microcosmic uh, level or you know, very personal level, very intimate level. It's absolutely appropriate to cultivate that uh, deep intimacy, almost transpersonal, where your personality can just take a break and you go into what's happening in the depths. And that's your meditation practice. Of course, <laughs> of course, um, one has to recognize that... Um, that sits within something much larger. And particularly with the forest teachings, the forest Dhamma teachings, it's the, the sense of the larger sphere is quite significant, the way you live, how you live, who you live with, uh, your cultivation of right speech, um, right action, frugality, you know, the things in the Metta Sutta, right? Humble and not conceited, contentedly, easily satisfied, you know, unburdened with duties, frugal in the ways. You actually practice them as a lifestyle. Well, that's your that's your model. And the meditation kind of occurs within that. You know, you're using your life to hone, train, restrain, cultivate, you know, firm up. Question yourself, what am I doing? What's really important? Then the values of that, the learning of that, you're taking to a depth, and in a depth level. And then, so this is a way links the depth to the surface, you might say, using those, that particular language. I'm going to make these things too ultimate, you know. You could say the inner to the outer. They're just kind of ways we experience things. They are... Perhaps not ultimately true, but we do experience things in that way. And of course, the um, as you see in the Metta Sutta, and uh, um, as Willow was commenting in the in the Vinaya teachings, the teachings on training how to live, the qualities of goodwill are pretty paramount. In fact, one would say there is no living, no real life, living vitality, refreshment learning that you can take into the depths without the quality of goodwill. So if we're saying, you know, what occurs on the surface, sensory, social level, yeah, if the messages there are of empathy, concern, morality, trustworthiness, then you're getting those signs and messages steadily and that's what you, that's what you take when you sit down and close your eyes the mind is used to that particular atmosphere and it takes it in. So you, you know, your foundation for meditation, you know, is established by, by your living circumstances. Yeah. And these living circumstances are not whether you live in California or Germany or Hong Kong, you know, differences, but, uh, you know, there are other people. 
There are people you share with. There are people you learn from. There are people who guide you. There are people you look after. So it's relational. There's a need to sustain oneself, to, to sustain this physical form, to use it wisely. To avoid harsh, deceitful, arrogant, destructive, domineering ways. Perhaps not humble, uh, not conceited. Not conceited means it's all about me. And everything else is secondary. So the skillful lifestyle, is it's about we. And yeah, so, so just to mention this, and uh, now when we <laughs> again, you know, say, well, who's practicing? So I was asking about self, and who's practicing meditation anyway? Well, it's the chitta, the awareness, the heart. These are just, in other words, that has been, you know, arisen within that matrix. It arises in embodied circumstance. It arises in embodied circumstance. It arises through a connection to parents, other people, and so on. So that, yeah. So it's, it's got particular relational form it arose through relationship took this particular form so its nature is essentially sympathetic actually this is not even you know peculiar to humans mother creatures also experience the same thing to their 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 clan their flock their horde their herd um, you know their young and so on it's very obvious, really. Uh, and they live in their environment. They're connected to their environment. And you read beautiful stories. I remember there's been the story of this penguin. A fisherman in Brazil had found this penguin covered in oil, oil slick. So he'd taken this penguin out of the ocean in Brazil, right? And cleaned it up, cleaned it up, looked after it, fed it, got it back to health, and released it back into the ocean. And the penguin then kind of penguined off, swam, fluttered off. And penguins live in Antarctica, which is several thousand kilometres away, I guess. But the funny thing, well, the funny thing was, you call it funny, every year this this penguin would make the journey from Antarctica up to this beach where he was rescued. And I've seen videos, this penguin coming out of the sea, flapping his wings. And he's looking for this fisherman. The fisherman's standing there. The penguin comes rushing up and he's kind of rubbing his beak over his feet and saying, what is this curious animal behaviour? He must be looking for food. No, he's just being grateful. <laughs> you know, and a penguin will make that journey just to express his gratitude to the person who saved his life. He, well, you know, do human beings do that? <laughs> what happened? happens <laughs> and it's not just that's not just the one-off seeing pictures of gorillas and lions a person who brought up some lion cubs you know big carnivorous cats and then they came to say so release them into the african uh, 
Savannah or South Africa when they were still cubs and then he goes out there you know five years later with a friend and he's kind of standing there's two lions come running up to him and suddenly he doesn't run and they just they put their paws on his shoulders and start licking him massive lions they're just obviously affection for this person who brought them up wow it's this kind of cellular experience that it's nothing to do with the intellect so but they're for human beings things take over yeah it's called avijasava the flood the the intoxication the corruption of of ignorance of not knowing this of somehow losing touch with that interconnected living quality we experience ourselves as separate individuals yeah completely separate and there's an isolation but also this kind of strange crazy pride about it like i am i'm a grown-up man i don't need anybody i'm making my own way in the world I'm different. you know you know it's got to compete you don't make you know push people aside because if they can't make it that's their problem you know this is a man's world or whatever it is or a woman's world you know <laughs> because of course the message has got through on all, all fronts people out there barging you know to compete you know? and uh, you know, this kind of thing domination strategies where people wipe each other out to take over a bit of land uh, yeah the loss of that sense of gradually mutuality belonging mm-hmm. so what's this got to do with Buddhism, Buddhist practice, well, the fact that we forget this, we just, because of what? And then what else happens? We get overwhelmed with the, with sense contact, the sensory data. And what, me, it's about me. I see it, it's mine. It occurs in my vision. I want it, I don't want it. It's all about me. I'm the centre of my world. Yeah. That's happening to me. I want it, I don't want it. I get upset if it happens because it's in my my world. You're making a noise. You're bothering me. <laughs> I don't like the look of you. Go away. Because <laughs> you're in my world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want one of those. Whether you know, I want what you got. I want it. I want to have it. You know, take it off a tree. Uh, take it from an animal. Kill an animal if it gets in my way. Of course. I'm a human, I'm above all this, I'm the Lord of the universe, not humble <laughs> at all. And so we see get this, this other flood or corruption called becoming. I want to, I, you know, I was, I am, I will be, I'm planning my own individual future. I want to, you know, it's towards being on top of things, being able to hold everything, control everything, so it becomes my way the way I want to be, I want to have that certain for me forever. You know, I don't think people think like that, but the, the kind of way the mind works is always, oh, how can I get, what will I be, will I be okay, so, you know, not what can I offer, how can I open, what can I release, how can I get, make, become something. 
And this particular, these messages then percolate through the way our mind operates. The Buddha says you've got to make an effort to abandon this wrong view. Otherwise it takes over. And he says, okay, this is, here's a quote. How is right view, the forerunner, one discerns wrong view as wrong view? And right view as right view. And what, this is one's right view. And what is wrong view? There is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. There is no fruit or result of good deeds or bad deeds. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father, no spontaneously born beings. No Brahmins or recluses and meditators who fearing rightly proclaim this world and the next after having known, directly realised it in themselves. This is wrong view. One tries to abandon wrong view and enter into right view. One tries to abandon wrong view and enter into right view. You have to make an effort. This is one's right effort. One is mindful to abandon wrong view and to enter and remain in right view. This is right mindfulness. Thus these three qualities, right view, right effort and right mindfulness run and circle around right view. The suit of reference that I'm quoting that from middle length sayings 117. It's called the Great Forty. Check it out for yourself. Right. So this is one's right mindfulness. What am I supposed to be mindful of? You know? Well, you've got to set up the right domain that you live in. Right? This is where you live. This is your basis. If you get that basis right, then your attitudes, so after right view comes samasankapa, right resolve, right attitude. It's to do with uh, non-cruelty, non-harming, and non-sensuality. Non not getting attached, not searching for gratification in the sense field, not dismissive and contemptuous of others, and not violent. We call it loving-kindness, compassion, and renunciation. This is one's right resolve, from right view. So this is the path, isn't it? Therefore, one's right speech, right action, right livelihood, Yada yada goes on, eightfold path. Make an effort. So your right mindfulness is actually sitting, or established, in the right territory, rather than the narrow territory of me and mine, as an individual has got to get what they want and get enlightenment. That's another thing that I've got. Yeah. No, it's not the way it works. That's self view. That's self-view. Self-view is a major hindrance. It has to be worked against. Yeah. And so certainly in the uh, forest tradition, you know, that's, that's worked against. You know, you don't get your own way. Yeah. And you belong to a community. And you have to serve and work together. And you live in relationship to the lay community. Uh, you have to be worthy of their offerings. 
and not manipulate. You know, don't accept money. Don't accept bribes. Don't don't do favors. Just you know, and support your elders. Ones who have gone forth before you, whether you particularly like them or not. Just learn to serve. What's going to happen? You know, yeah, there'll be unpleasant feelings probably, but unpleasant feelings part of life. But gradually the mind will be trained and honed. They say it's worth a bit of displeasure to get rid of self-view. It's worth it <laughs> to get out of this self-obsessiveness. If it hurts a bit to do it, I'll ha I'll take that on. And it does hurt. <laughs> one makes an effort and is encouraged to do it so if everybody else is doing it you do it that's the way it works yeah. now you look at the various ways in which that kind of presentation is, is mentioned in the suttas you know, like your precept is called the one who shares your cell. You live together. You share the same tiny little, little dwelling place. Yeah. And, the, and the training is the disciple gets up before the elder prepares things, prepares the robe, prepares the bowl, gets the place clean. So the elder wakes up, gets up, things are ready. They go out for arms round, they come back. The junior, the disciple takes the elder's bowl, cleans it, sets up the place, prepares for the elder, comes in, has the elder gives a talk, gives instruction. The disciple expresses appreciation. Okay, go and meditate now. Evening comes round, disciple, how can I serve, help out? This way of living. Very connected. You know, now it's not love in the kind of romantic sense, but do you remember, you know, the Buddha teaches out of Anukampa, which is sympathy. One is just sympathy. Like one recognizes and resonates with the welfare of another. And this helps through, is a beautiful way of abandoning self-view. Because you're opening yourself you out through a, a gentle and voluntary. You don't have to. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But if you want to be part of this, that's that's the training. You open out of that in a rather bodice way. All I have to do like, is kind of do a bit of cleaning and you know offer out, help out, uh, and ask. You know, you know, enter into a relationship. And there's respect, mutual respect, and so forth, and mutual care goes on in that. And then something in you begins to lose its its hardness and its intensity and its obsessiveness about what I've got to get and practice with. And I've, I've seen, you know, results of of people who don't quite get that. You know, we've had clearly a monastery ladies you get people come who want to they've done 
you know, you had its only retreats here and there, they just want to basically do more retreat. So a monastery looks like a place, yeah, you can do more retreat. I, it's basically, a, it's, a, it's a life retreat center, in a way it is. But it's not a life meditation center <laughs> in terms of what they imagine it will be. Because, like, okay, you get your meditation practice, time, formal practice, it's often in a group. People like being in a group. People shuffle. I don't feel comfortable in the group. I want to be on my own. Well, what's the problem? I've had people say, I can't be mindful if there are other people around. They disturb my practice. If they're sitting still, what's, where did you come from? <laughs> and you get uh, people who get interested in things like, where's the, I want the cessation. Like it says in the suttas, the cessation of consciousness. I want to get that. This one's going to be a problem. And so they're practicing very diligently. They don't. They don't socialize. They stay in their room. They meditate a lot. They practice it. And I have one of these chaps, and um, to cut a long story short, he he found himself one day with a jar of peanut butter in his hand, and he realised he'd eaten half this jar of peanut butter. He had no awareness of it. He'd gone down into the cellar where the stuff is stored in a complete oblivion state because he'd gone into cessation. <laughs> While he was in cessation, his hand reached out, got a jar of peanut butter, opened it up and was eating it, and he suddenly came out of cessation. What is going on here? And so he realised basically his mind had just snapped. Awareness had completely gone. And so we had to take him to a psychiatrist and get a lot of effort to make things stop, to stop the thought, to stop the feeling, to get to that place where you don't feel things. You know, this vibhava, it's called, the desire, the craving to get out of being here. And right view is, well, you are here. Being here means there are others. And the proper way to relate to others is giving, offering, sharing. To recognize there are people who protect you, who have nourished you. To stay in that, in that domain. Embodied, living, human domain. Not some trans personal out there world which people want because they don't want to meet the discomforts and the things of daily life they want to get out no no you don't don't get out that way you get out through meeting it opening to it relaxing your craving <laughs> relaxing your self-view around it and eventually that stuff is there but you're not you're comfortable, you're at ease with it, you're spacious with it. It doesn't grip you. Yeah. And um, your energies begin to open from this constricted individual, me, self-independent, got to make it for myself, experience into something where that, that centre doesn't actually mean very much anymore. You know? So even people ask me what I want, I kind of think, I don't really 
I appreciate what you're saying and the gesture, but I want to live in harmony with you. And that's what I want. And whatever, however that works, I want to try and find that because that's what makes me feel good. Where I feel most most settled and stable. I don't want to live in disharmony. I can't, you know, my mind isn't happy. So this is kind of foundational stuff, you know. And as the Buddha talks his practice, as you start off recollecting your good deeds, your giving, your offering, your sharing, you recollect those till your heart feels happy with that. Feeling happy with that, your body begins to relax. It takes in, you feel, I am here in a way where I feel my life is fruitful. I'm not, got, I haven't got walls around me. Yeah. And therefore, body feels relaxed and happy. The mind is happy. The mind settles. This is called samadhi. And from there, with samadhi, you're in depth. And you can see things clearly, like this is not worthy, this is useless, this has to be dwelt upon, this is the sign I need to, to turn towards. This is the understanding of conditions. The mind has actually found a true basis. So you're looking at, and, and I think uh, you know, the Buddha is saying this vehicle of, of goodwill which I'm using to cover all the metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, just the general sense of a good heart. So this vehicle is to be made much of, extended for your liberation. It liberates you from harshness, loneliness, anxiety, worry, regret, bitterness, pride, arrogance. Not just direct malevolence, but from a disease of the heart. Right, so, and uh, the other day I was talking about the problems of the heart when it's experienced abuse, where we lived in a non-empathetic domain, you know, even temporarily. You know, so we live in it, if we, we are in this, this is the problem of the surface world, you know, you can... There, there are evil qualities around and sometimes you get hit by them. So that definitely leaves results. And generally the, the story is that the younger you are that that happens, or the more vulnerable you are, the deeper that impression goes because the younger, more vulnerable and sensitive you are, then the wounding goes deeper, impresses itself, and it actually your heart kind of is, is contracted by that. This is abuse. 
not because of what you've done. If it's because of what you did, you could say, oh, that was foolish. I regret that. I see that. I'll stop doing it. And when it's done to you, how do you get out of it? So, as I think we've been um, touching into, just bearing when you experience that, the contracted heart, the defended heart, the closed heart, can't feel anything, I don't feel loving at all, I don't understand how where this love stuff comes from anyway, what am I supposed to like, I don't feel any particular meta, I just feel pretty constricted and a bit bleak, where does it come from, how do I get the meta going, you know, I'd like to, how does it happen, so that, okay, well then you use your focus of, of mindfulness, and who's that? And who's that one? How does that feel? Hmm? How does that feel? Don't like it. Feels it feels bad, but nothing I can do about it. So I generally go move away from it. Do something to pick myself up. I move away from it. What when there's no moving away from it? What do you do then? Hmm. Try and force myself out of it. Try and push it away worry why I've got it, how did it happen to me, something wrong with me. What about if you take the self-you out of it? Just say, this is a heart, constricted, uncomfortable, not settled. What if you take the self out of it? Oh, don't you get a sense of some kind of compassion? Oh, this is what happens to a human being, a human heart. I can't do anything about it. But I feel some feeling of compassion arises when we see it as not self. Now this then, of course, is the value of meditation. You know, where we you disengage, not to ignore, but to get perspective. You step back. And you use your body, that bodily presence is something you can step back into, so you can be aware of the feeling in your body, you can be aware of sitting, you're aware of standing, you're just a simple grounding, and your, your attention is established there, and then you look towards that contracted heart. Oh, how is that? Don't fix it, don't blame it. Beginning perhaps of, oh, this is a heart. It's like this. Hmm. Don't give up on it. Don't give up on it. And try to almost breathe. Why we say then? Then breathing, because the breathing has got this suffusive energy. The suffusive energy will actually do what your words can't do. You could talk to that heart, tell it to cheer up, it's not going to work. But you get a suffusive, steady, rhythmic energy passing through it, which has no resistance to it, which doesn't want to change it. And it allows the energies of the contraction, the denting, the contraction of the heart. How does it contract? Because something seized it. That's an energy, a fear. One is violated, it's fear, it's contracted, 
So it's an energetic thing has happened that causes that to be tightened up. And breathing through that gradually, 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 that contraction can begin to soften. We're not pushing it. It's just sheer chemistry. Then it can, it's quite natural. The thing is, the right view to recognize the should be or the, the modality is of connected gratitude, offering, sharing, you know, belonging. And this does not feel like it belongs to anything. This feels completely alone, isolated, compressed. Uh oh, something wrong here. Something needs to be turned towards and breathed through. letting the breathing do it because as I've said before uh, reiterated because it is strange at that level the body the breathing and the heart are really not separate they they flow together they flow together you think oh, sounds quite strange well how do you think you got born where do you think the cells how did they learn you started out as one cell how did that one cell figure out how to become a hair or a liver or a tooth? Mm. Something told it, didn't it? I don't think it don't think it got a you know it wasn't an app, <laughs> a birth app that it, there's a fundamental intelligence that's percolating and felt within this cellular material form that organizes it. That material form is attuned. To, to a kind of an intelligence that that generates you know, that opens and generates multiplicity of forms, life itself. It's not hard, it's not contracted, it's not static. And so we're breathing through, we're bringing the very breath of life with the resonances through our contracted psychologies. It's a very clean way. Allowing yourself to feel. And in that process of uncontracting, it's sometimes quite uncomfortable. Like you come out of a car crash, and the first of all your days, you've escaped from the car crash. You know, you've got out and you ran away. You sit down, oh wow, so grateful I got out, and then the pain starts after you got out. So there's abuse, there's also the withdrawal of empathy. That is, it's not that anybody's done anything particularly nasty to you, just you lived in a domain where there wasn't much of that sense of relational fluency, sharing, giving, offering, and so forth. You lived in that. So it's the depletion of heart rather than the, you know, the sort of uh, abuse of it. It's a starvation of heart. Unfortunately, this form is rather common. Uh, and it stands out, particularly, I think, 
living within well, in the domain of the Thai forest tradition, basically a forest tradition. It was originally all pretty much village people. The village people living on the land are very interconnected. Everybody knows everybody. The kids are running around in the village. The buffaloes, goats, sheep, everybody's milling around in a gentle way. It's highly relational. And uh, so for them, they think, no, you just, well, here we are. It's really nice to be here. There's a group of us, 15 of us sitting here meditating. Just, oh, and they get the sanya, the perception of the group is a comfortable experience to be in. And so just make yourself happy and comfortable in the group. And then once you make yourself happy, relax, and then, you know, you can do your meditation. So you get there. I don't like the look of him. What's going on? I feel nervous. I feel awkward. I feel embarrassed. I feel like I'm odd. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. They say, well, just relax and you know, make yourself happy. And then we'll, how I do that? How am I supposed to make myself happy? Because there's the sound of the rooster crowing and I, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I, I'd like a different, well, okay, well, so just, you know, here's the group, people. You feel happy. There's all these other people here. How can I meditate? He moves. And they relax. Oh, for you, the group's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> for us, it's a delight. So sitting in a group, oh, wonderful. Oh, great. For us, oh, oh what about him? What about her? I don't, I'm not in the right place. I feel funny. I'm big. I'm too small. I'm something. Self-consciousness. You know, highly self-conscious. And the group makes me feel very self-conscious and uncomfortable. How I look or what he's doing, I get very nervy. So I, think, I can't meditate here. And they're going, well, do you like some more people around you? No, I don't want anybody around me. <laughs> and they think, oh, that's really good. You've got so much sense. You've got so much full awareness. You don't even need the support of the group because you've, you've internalized that wonderful support. No, you haven't internalized it at all. <laughs> it's just socially socially dysfunctional. Because <laughs> when you come from the land, the people of the land are naturally bonded to the land, the animals, each other. That's that's where they, that's their basis. We are not entities. We are we are we are cells of a body. They don't think you like that, but that's that's the felt experience. For us, there's no body. There's no body to be to sell off. I'm on my own. I've got to make a living. You know, I only got you know B minus grades. I'm not as good as she is. I've got to make a head. I you know nobody's going to look after me when I'm older. I better make sure I've got a living insurance policy. You know, and we create a society that does that. You know, live in your little box on your own. That's the ideal. Get a stash of money so you don't have to depend on anybody. You see people in the street. Don't say hello to them because oh, strangers. And, uh, you know, you see, maybe you see a hundred people a day and you walk past them because I don't know where he is and she is and I've got to get to work anyway. Uh, and uh, even when I was a little boy in, in London, the street, you could go out and kind of play around in the street. You can't do that anymore. Not safe. There's too many cars. Can't sit down. Policeman come and move you on. You want to sit down somewhere, you've got to pay for it. No, no, no public spaces you can kind of, or very limited. So we're creating a dystopia, and the effects of that mean that we don't experience ourselves as part of anything. Yeah. 
they asked her, somebody's telling me they had a little, in South Africa, a little village group, and they're asking the kids, draw a picture of where you live, where you live. And everyone would draw a picture of their entire village rather than their room or their house. I live in this. Which house? Oh, don't, one of these, because they move around from house to house. So, you know, the result of that, unconscious feeding, it's kind of coming in an unconscious way. You, you feel you belong and uh, you feel that's, you know, less isolated individual. And the mind then is shaped in a different way. Less trying to perform to get better. Less self-consciousness. Less trying to be, live up to some ideal. Much more acceptance. Yeah. This takes the strain out of meditation. Or the pressure out of meditation. And this is a quality, you can call it fundamental Base, base level goodwill, yeah, an energy, not just an emotion, but an energy. Yeah. And that you sit still and you know, you're opening to that. And you're getting, instead of the psychologies of, I've got to try and make my mind behave, I've got to try and get on top of this, try to make my mind shut up and be quiet. And, I'm worried so much about who I am. The sense of just something coming in that's creating ease and comfort. Ease is all that isolationist stuff, the strangulation of the heart through worry, regret, anxiety about oneself, loneliness, the slow strangulation of what could be and wishes to be loving. Mm. So how do we de- how do we deal with that? You know, well, obviously community is part of that, but you can be in a community and still feel odd, still feel like you're the odd one out, the new one, the one who's weird, strange one. Everybody can feel like that in a group. It doesn't necessarily work by just throwing a bunch of people together. Uh, yeah. So you also begin to work upon the sense of the isolated self with its need to be good, make it work, be perfect, not upset people, do the right thing, take care of everybody else, you know. It's trying to express its love, but it can't do it in an easeful way. It's always doing it in a doing way. And it's this quality of, of ground level love is not doing anything, it's just being. Being held in a comfortable place. So you contemplate that isolated self, the experience of it. And how it feels in your body. Probably for most people that would be upper body. So extending through the entire body into the space around you, the ground beneath you. Where does that sense of yourself end? Do you sense that the ground beneath you is outside yourself? If it was outside you, how could you feel it? 
it's part of your awareness, isn't it? It's in your awareness. Right. So that the sense of the ground beneath you, from a visual point of view, it's outside you, but it's within your experience. So from the awareness point of view, it's not outside you. It's within awareness. The sounds that arise, the sounds of the birds, the sounds of the cars, they're outside me. They're annoying me. If they're outside you, why are they getting into you? Why are they bothering you if they're outside you? They're not outside you. They're within your awareness, aren't they? Right? So instead of that defending, irritating, could we meet those sounds as part of our domain with a mind of non-resistance? Sound is doing what sound does. It's not trying to hurt me. It's not attacking me. It's just doing what sound does. I stop seeing it as an impingement and something getting in my way. Strange enough, the impact of it begins to recede. Where I'm living now, uh, for many years, monasteries are living out. We're always building sites. We're always building. And uh, while I was the abbot of Chittabhivaka, the building I lived in was right next to where they were building the main Dummer Hall, about five metres away, perhaps less. So all day, most days, there'd be the sound of hammering, stone saws grinding stone, tile saws grinding tiles, whining, grinding tiles, machines thumping and crashing. And I'd be sitting there in my cootie with this crash bang sound. I could feel it kind of shuddering through me. Shut up! I can meditate. I've been practicing to meditate. I can't. You know what I'm looking at? I'm not doing a bit of peace. I'm the abbot here, after all. I should be able to meditate in this place. Why can't you? How can you saw a stone quietly? It's impossible. <laughs> so eventually, you just okay. Just you can feel that tensing up against the sound, and then I just I, I can't stop the sound. But I can stop the tensing up. I don't want to stop it. I want to defend myself. I can't defend myself against the sound. The sound's not actually hostile. I just don't like it. Now, could I just not even try to like it, but just stop that tensing up and feel that sound and then the shudder of unpleasant feeling after it and just let it pass through? Sound, unpleasant feeling. Sound, unpleasant feeling and reaction. Sound, unpleasant feeling, reaction, proliferation. How dare they? I'm trying to meditate. Da, 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 da. Okay. Sound, unpleasant feeling, reaction. Then eventually sound, unpleasant feeling, reaction. Oh, well. Sound, unpleasant feeling, no reaction. Sound, not much unpleasant feeling. Sound, 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 silence, sound, silence. Silence, sound, so on. It's just change. Non-resistance. You do that with those voices in your head. A bit more difficult because they sound like you, don't they? Telling you all kinds of really desperate things you need to do or can't do or 
will or won't. Do they do you any good? No. Do they have any answers? No. Do you wish they go away? Yes. Well, can you make them go away? No. <laughs> Help. <laughs> well, they just stop resisting. Feel the emotion. Gather yourself around the emotion with the mind of goodwill. Heart is a little agitated. Gather yourself around that. Breathing in, breathing out. Buddha ever on the mark he said if thieves catch you at the crossroads they take you tie you down and they cut your limbs off if you experience a moment of ill will you haven't fulfilled what I'm talking about. <laughs> if thieves catch you at the crossroads, cut off your arms and legs, and you experience ill will, you haven't really grasped this teaching. Okay? You haven't practiced metta. <laughs> what? That's criminal behavior, abuse. No, it's just, uh, okay, they've tied you down. Nothing you can do about it. You getting upset and nasty is just going to leave your heart in a terrible state. So just, you know, I mean, it's a metaphor. Right? Non-resistance. Okay, that's the way it goes. Focus on the pain, discomfort. Practice, this is your death time. Practice because now you're going. Don't leave with a mind of ill will. Don't leave with a mind of fear and aggression. Leave with a mind that's okay. That's the way it was. That's this is an analogy, of course. So that sense, as we really get that. Now, the more we can train ourselves in a sympathetic empathic relationship to phenomena, sights and sounds, pains, discomforts. Yeah. Then we turn suffering into blessing. We turn the pain and the shame and the regret and so forth in the heart. We say, oh, this is the place where you have, where if you stay with it, don't run away from it, don't shut it down, stay with it. You're going to learn massive, massive, treasures of compassion, spaciousness, goodwill. Mm -hmm. It will be for your benefit. When we understand this, surely we are fearless. Because mm -hmm. we know where our refuge is. And that refuge is the strong heart, the rich heart. Nothing can take that away from you. Mm. This is the treasure of the Dhamma. Now, as we live in such alien times, 
surely one of our blessings here is to be, even in this strange, slightly dislocated way, in some kind of community experience. And consider your fellow practitioners near and far who are gathering together, and the managers and the people who are helping to make this with a heart of appreciation, gratitude and sympathy. It'll be for your welfare and for our welfare. Where you can overcome this, this isolation. And this tremendous need to develop that, this increasingly technologized way, day, day and night. I saw an account of a woman, her 12 year old baby with her, and she needs to get some fuel for the car. So she pulls up the gas station, petrol station, to get some fuel for the car. Uh, she's only allowed to stay for 15 minutes because parking issues or something. So the baby wants to be fed. He didn't read the notice. <laughs> only 12 weeks old. So he's trying to get somewhere secluded where she can breastfeed this child. And of course, she's got to get somewhere where she can do that in this gas station. Drives on some side of the road. Okay, well, okay, you know, got to sit somewhere and you know, breastfeed the baby. She takes more than 15 minutes. She gets a 60 pounds fine for, for breastfeeding her baby beyond the time limit. You know? And you're thinking, this is what we've got to. You can't perform the most fundamental, essential, natural, nourishing human gesture without some technological supervision putting a time limit on it. Maybe the baby should have downloaded an app <laughs> to get it done. Yeah. And so this is kind of what we have to work against, this increasing you know, me- mechanization of our lives. Therefore, we should see our fellow human beings, not as you know, him, her, I feel self-conscious, I don't know about why we belong to this group, and so I'm going to practice on my own. Watch out for that. Human beings, a true human being is a refuge. A true human being is an education. A true human being is a place where we can bring forth our blessings. And that requires true compassion, empathy, loving kindness, serenity, all of it. So, offer this for your reflection. <laughs>